This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. David, before we start our podcast, do you know what Feedspot is? Well, I didn't know until I read an email we'd received about Feedspot, which goes about discovering and ranking popular blogs and podcasts like ours. And do you know what they ranked us as? Tell me, Jen. Absolutely. Well, we ranked one of the top 35 in Australia. So we better stop talking and let you listen. Get on with the show. Thanks, Jan. Gender politics is certainly in the news right now, but have you questioned it in your own family or at your children's school or perhaps even in your own marriage? This is at the centre of Tipping by Anna George. Welcome back to Published or Not, Anna. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. I've spoken with you about your last two books, What Came Before and The Lone Child. In these books, you write about incidents that don't happen to every family. Now it's tipping. Do you think it's relevant to all families? No, I think you made an excellent point there, actually. Yeah, I think it is. Tipping is concerned with, like you said, a number of layers of um, gender equality, particularly in the home. And everybody has their own agreement, I suppose, with their partner as to how things roll in the home in terms of who does what. And whether it's stated or unstated, there is some sort of understanding there as to how things function. And whether that works or whether that's equal, that's really up to the people in those um, relationships to work through. But, yeah, I think we all, any one of us who has a partner, and particularly a partner with children where you're sharing that extra load of the children, will have some agreement between them or mm-hmm. understanding or pattern even um, as to how things fall. Now, that's in real life. We're back into the fiction now. Who was the Winsome family? They're, I guess, my key family in this book, Tipping. The book's told in three points of view. It's in Liv Winsome's point of view, her husband Duncan's point of view, and another woman, Jess Charters, who is the mum of a girl, and Liv and Duncan have three sons. So the Winsomes are Liv, Duncan, two twins, Cody is a nine-year-old and the twin boys are Jay and Oscar. Jay, who's involved in a sexting scandal or a sexism scandal at his private school, and that's what brings the book to life. Jay wasn't the only one involved. It was his best mate, Blake, and Blake's parents were called in too. Liv and Stella are best friends. They have different types of parenting. We need to find out a little bit about Liv. She's a bit of a super mum. Maybe you could read from page five, please, Anna. So Liv rushed, she supposed, to fit everything in and keep everyone happy, as if her husband's and her children's happiness were her KPIs. Of course, Duncan's happiness was ultimately his responsibility, but Liv did what she could, and much of the boys' happiness fell to her. And her boys were happy, or so she'd thought. Their happiness was measured in activities and grades and goals, friends and haircuts and shoes, Each day she attended to their breakfasts and school lunches, their clean washing and stainless steel water bottles, their home-baked after-school snacks and healthy, colourful dinners. Each week she scheduled the boys' basketball training for two teams, their local domestic team and a representative team, and their football games, clarinet, trumpet practice and maths tutor, swimming lessons and play dates for nine-year-old Cody. Until recently she'd patched their six knees, cut their 30 toenails and sponged their countless stains. She still chased a filthy Cody around the backyard with a hose, listened to his eternal illogical stories, stemmed his bloody noses. She washed the boys' bed in an admittedly not often enough and hung their towels. Nightly, she scrolled through the twins' messages and monitored their screen time, 
and she'd never seen anything alarming, not like this. To preserve her sanity and her marriage, she'd organised annual holidays, dinners with friends and date nights. 25 years ago, she was a high-achieving student. And today, she was a high-achieving mother and wife, a super-doer, or so she'd thought. She'd been living, she realised, as if one day someone was going to grade her efforts and that A-plus was going to make everything worthwhile. Yes, and in contrast to this, Blake's mum, Stella. How would you, how would you describe Stella? Yeah, she's a very uh, relaxed parent. I think Liv at one stage says she's, you might think she's a permissive parent and that she just lets anything go, but she doesn't even have a philosophy because she hasn't put her mind to it enough to even form an opinion about her own parenting. She's adopted the view with her husband that he can't be bothered and leaves it to her and if he can't be bothered, she can't be bothered. So they're pretty much just left to their own devices. And that's um, what happens with Blake. He's left to his own devices. Now, Jay's girlfriend, Grace, and her friend, Bella, were two of the girls involved. And what surprises their mothers is just how unaffected they are. In fact, Grace says to her mother, oh, chill, mum, it's not a big deal. But Jess, this is the third person that's annotating this book. She does get involved. She wants to name and shame. What else does she do about these boys that have put up these girls on Instagram and rated them? Yeah, Jess is a very angry mum because her daughter has been publicly shamed and she also feels judged as well because her daughter's hopped into a fairly sexy outfit and taken some photos of herself. So Jess is public in her outrage and she puts it on a neighbourhood Facebook page which draws attention and support for Jess, but it also attracts negative attention and she's trolled for her efforts there. And it's not an easy position for her because she's not someone who is politically active usually. And she goes to radio and she also goes to the police. And look, I love this. The year eight coffee morning assembled there is basically the girl's mothers. And into this comes Liv. And she realises she hardly knew any of them because she's always been involved with her sons and her son's parents and mothers and sports. So how was she greeted? Yeah, it's not a great response the morning (laughs) after the weekend of the sexting um, account being posted the Instagram account and so Liv takes some time to realise that she's the only boy's mum there and she's obviously uh, Jay's mum so he's right in the thick of it but she's not one to shy away from a challenge and she thinks that she might be able to connect with these women because the women are not the children and the children have their own agency and the mums have their own agency so surely we can talk this through like adults which is not actually quite the way it goes. (laughs) What was going to happen to a son She Googled what would happen at school, and this is a quote, there's going to be expulsion accompanied by counselling, a burst of pastoral care for the students who remained. Naughty children were shuffled out. The parents' embarrassment faded. The end. So really, we'll go to the school. The principal, who usually sets the tone of a school, Tony Crisp. Hmm. Ignorant boys or foolish girls. Was it the culture of the school? Before we get on to Tony, I'd like you to read from page 67 about the assistant principal. And let's see whether you can judge this school by itself. Okay, so this is in Jess's point of view. Jess is the mum of Grace. So she's on the school grounds and she turns and she sees assistant principal Palmer was farewelling four mums in gym gear and big sunglasses. He towered over the laughing women as he held open the gate. The AP was what you'd call a man's man, thought Jess, though women liked him too. It was the muscles, Jess figured, and the big grin, the deep voice. He wasn't her type. 
Two suited men, teachers wearing lanyards to identify them, passed by. One of the perks of being a lead teacher, said one to the other, prep mum gate duty. The men laughed. With a tut-tut under her breath, Jess headed away from the junior school towards the basketball courts. Most men were simply overgrown boys, she thought. Here's the assistant principal. Tell us a little bit about Tony Crisp, the principal. I think Tony Crisp is a well-meaning man who is just out of touch. He's out of touch with current expectations of how children should treat each other and of understandings around gender and the role his school can play in addressing the issue presented by the Instagram account. He really sees it as a case of a bad apple. Every so often we get one, we, we sort through, sift them out, toss them away and life goes on. He doesn't understand that 80 or 90 odd kids interacted with that Instagram account put up by a couple or a handful of boys and that they also rated and had something to say about it, nor that those boys have been in his school for seven years or so and have been a product of the culture of the school as well as of their homes. He doesn't really take that on until Mm. Liv decides to call his attention to it. The school and Tony, Chris, the principal, is open to parental input and Liv wants the school to employ an expert. She suggests somebody, Vic Cato. But Tony Crisp and uh, assistant principal Palmer, they have somebody else in mind. That was a, just a beautiful little play around there, Anna George. Who did uh, they you, want? I'm glad you enjoyed that. Well, listen, we can't talk about it too much because we don't want to give it away. But no, they had in mind someone who's world-renowned and highly acclaimed in this space, who's written books and all the rest of it. And Liv had her heart set on someone quite similar. So... Um, I wanted to play around with that and see how the men interacted with Liv as they have that conversation because Liv thinks and realises that she's a mum. She's a difficult mum that they're trying to placate and pat on the head and send on her way. So she's feeling quite managed through the process of suggesting her friend or acquaintance. Um, Yeah, but I enjoyed writing those scenes. This woman, Vic Cato, does come into the school and she explains to the year eights that she's not pushing feminism she's pushing fairism who doesn't want fair for everyone I look some of this research this is in your own area of behavioral design is that correct well it's not my area it's an area that I stumbled across when I was researching the book because I wanted to create a school that goes through culture change and deals with gender issues and outs the sexism and teaches the kids how to interact with each other respectfully and teaches them about objectification and all these things. But I didn't want to have people delivering lectures too much. I mean, that needs to happen and they need to have an intellectual understanding of these issues. But I wanted behaviour change to come about across the school and I wanted to do it in a creative way. And then I'd stumbled across this field called behavioural design, which loads of people know about, no doubt, but I didn't. And my understanding of behavioural design is designing environments to influence people's behaviour and nudge them in a certain direction, to shift behaviour in a certain direction without needing to convince everybody intellectually to do something. You just put something in an environment which leads to behaviour change. And in a classic example, discussions around this is wanting gender equality in professional orchestras and what was done there was the introduction of blind auditions. So orchestras audition behind a screen, lo and behold, instead of 5% of the musicians in the orchestras being female, there are almost 40% of these orchestras have female musicians. This is the, in the US in the 1970s, this stuff happened and now it's quite widespread. I understand that people audition behind screens because people are auditioning with their eyes, the people listening rather than listening with their ears. 
Um, so that's an intervention, a very elegant, simple intervention, which leads to a different outcome without needing to talk everybody into being, you know, feminist or whatever. Um, people will say they probably are feminist and still um, have their unconscious biases. So it's all about understanding how the brain works, insights into the brain works, how the brain works and um, into unconscious biases and using those insights to nudge people's behaviour without having to convince them to do anything. So in my book, I also threw in some other um, bits and pieces which was kind of wild cards and a little bit uh, wacky because my consultant's not, she's a bit of a loose cannon, so she comes up with some creative things of her own which may or may not be legit. So I mixed that in for a bit of fun. But, you know, a lot of it is they're based on um, behavioural science and studies that have found these things have an impact. And so I put them in my book because it, there is absolutely a way of changing people's behaviour without needing to debias their minds and behavioural design is uh, a big part of that. Well, these changes in the classroom are coming back in to, to the Winston family and Duncan's picking up on them too. He is trying to create change in his workplace. How's he doing that? Yeah, well, Liv inspires him really. He's a bit reluctant at first to uh, acknowledge there's an issue, but he's in a small partnership as a lawyer and all his partners are men. So that's really not acceptable today to not have women in your leadership team. So he sets about uh, with Liv's very serious um, nudging in the elbows to try and find a female partner to join his partnership. And then he begins to introduce some of the types of changes or similar to those changes brought about at Carmichael Grammar to his workplace and others as well. He reads around and she Liv encourages him to look at the way he's working because he works all mm. the time. It's not efficient. It's not good for their marriage or their family life or his, really his well-being. But he doesn't realise that until he has a really good look at it and starts to unpick the way he's constructed his life and shift it through making tweaks, tiny adjustments here and there. Grace, I'm sorry, I'm doing another quote from your Anna George's book, Tipping. I thought the biggest problems facing my generation were climate change and global health, not how the developed world is run by middle-aged white guys who employ people who look like them. Because the book's about how small things can have an impact. Um, that's what a tipping point is, isn't it? And that's I was really interested in the power of tipping points and how after them things change quite radically and suddenly and how you don't really know at any given moment when that tipping point might happen which is exciting in a way because any one of us could be an architect at the tipping point if we're out in the, in the world doing something. You know, you need the context to be right. And I, it is just how incredibly topical it is with the current schools in Melbourne literally wanting to go through this process of change at the moment. I mean, I would love if these people would read my book and think about behavioural design and research that, whether they're already being approached by behavioural designers, I don't know, but it's not something that comes up in the press. They talk about consent education and respectful relationships, but they're not talking about how there is actually this whole other world and a whole big tool, another tool that they can use, something I'm becoming passionate about, but I'm not a behavioural designer. Can the attitudes within marriage, school and work be changed? Can they become fairer? Anna George has a very hopeful and insightfully humorous book about this happening in Tipping. Thank you very much, Anna. Well, thank you for having me. And now it's David's turn. Murder and subterfuge intersect in Roland Perry's latest novel, The Shaman, where a religiously inspired inventor and geologist takes on the oil industry, the American and British political conglomerates, and even Vladimir Putin. So, Roland, welcome back to 3CR. It's a great pleasure to be here, David. Thank you. The improbable here actually seems 
highly likely. I originally thought that the mining magnet you have as one of your main characters, Al Hout, was yeah. actually based on a well-known Melbourne identity who thought he was preordained by God to find diamonds, but that's not true. So just transfer him to Tasmania and we have the character you, you require who feels ordained by God because he had a vision at 17. And I ran with it because I thought, first of all, I thought it was nonfiction, David. And then three months in, I looked at him after he told me something absolutely extraordinary, which you've read in about an incident in Sandy Bay, Tasmania. And I said after the long interview in Northern Thailand at Chiang Mai, um, this has to be fiction. And so I embarked on really a non-fiction narrative veiled, sometimes thinly, sometimes not veiled at all, sometimes veiled, which has a lot of strong non-fiction themes. So that gets it published, David. It's a matter of publish or not, as you well know. Better to get it out there because it needs to have that sort of environmental breath, if you like. Now, Al Hout, the mining magnet, if you will, claims to have discovered oil in Tasmania. He also yep. claims, I'm on a mission from God. Those are his yep. words. He claims to have a link to Aboriginal heritage, which has enabled him to find the oil. And he makes other rather extreme claims and if I can read in a nutshell I'm going to harness the energy of thunderstorms very hot air meets very cold air and creates lightning I am to capture that in my technology the collision creates what I call plasmoids they are tiny atomic results of that collision the plasmoids which in effect are collapsing bubbles in the water will be harnessed to create energy. This will fuel all engines. There will be no need for fossil fuel energy. Is Al Hout a fantabulist? He is both fantabulous and real, and that's one of the great things about him. The Aborigine link, by the way, in other words, his uh, belief as he calls himself a prophet of nature, is real. I, he didn't say, oh, by the way, this will help your book and make it topical. I am an Aborigine or I've got strong Aborigine blood. I had to sort of not tease it out of him. He wasn't ashamed of it or he didn't push it up. So that was a really interesting link given his prophetic nature, the fact that he believes in uh, the earth as a living entity, the same way as the Aborigines do, the indigenous people in this country long before Christianity had the earth as a living, breathing entity and all in it, in other words, kangaroos, mountains, Uluru, you name it, were part of their belief system. And the, the Christianity is over an overlay. So I was fascinated, this man who is nominally Christian, he's also Buddhist and every other thing that on the planet, um, he has that link and it is real. I've, so that's not fantasy. Uh, the other elements that you mentioned there are, well, I've read the, uh, I have done essay reports in terms of financial journalist, journalism years ago, but I was able to read what's called an APIA paper, which is the official governing body of oil discovery, if you like, in Australia. And I believe he struck oil. And most of the geologists who are not bound to some other people through corruption 
agree with that assessment. I would say it's at a 95 to 99% certainty he has found a huge reservoir of oil, an enormous well in Tasmania. Well, before we get onto that and the science behind that, there is another yes. character I want to touch on first, and that Let's is one Victor Cavalier, who yes. is actually protecting him. But Victor's got an interesting sort of role. He's a freelance journalist, but he's also yes. active or known to ASIO and the CIA. And I'm sort of curious about that intersection between his journalism and his yes. spying. Because journalism and the articles he writes are actually used as a weapon. They are all the journalism in the book. In other words, where you see reference to the Times in London or the New York Times, uh, are all real articles that have appeared. I'm not saying they're all written by the one fellow, but they've appeared in reference to um, adversaries of hopes, if you like, because... He does come in on Hote's side very early, and there are two reasons for that, and the exact reasons that I came in on it. And that is when I was told in Chiang Mai at a meeting with um, a photographer, an Englishman, who'd been filming his invention, he said, this is based on cold fusion. And I immediately, the eyes lit up, and I said, I know a little bit about that from my university days tell me about it. So he told me about it. And I thought, well, this guy's worth talking to. I had no idea on the spiritual element in it at all. Um, I didn't know about the oil at that stage. And so I deigned, I said, I want to meet him. He came to Chiang Mai, that's Al Hote. And we began a series of interviews that have lasted four years. The book did not take four years, but it took about a year of me riding a wild horse, a wild tiger, if you like, trying to pin it down. I've never done this before, but I actually wrote the story as I was researching because it was so much, as you've already alluded to, so much in it that I had to keep on the narrative pretty strongly. And I left out huge chunks. That's how I got fascinated with this guy. It doesn't mean that I'm suddenly a hmm. move from um, being a, a typically sceptical journalist and agnostic into sudden belief at the, you know, one of God's prophets at his feet. But I did think I'm fascinated now on a couple of levels. One, the cold fusion, and one, this, this spiritual link. As an author, rather than just a nonfiction biographer and so forth, this was a huge challenge to come to grips with. These two characters, Al and Victor, provide a personal dimension to your story, but the backdrop against which this is set is that of the corporate and political conglomerates like yes. the five sisters. Would you like to explain that concept and the degree of global influence they have? I narrow it down to one uh, amalgam, if you like, of energy companies and called it Conquer. But you'll also find there have been mysterious deaths, not so mysterious deaths, frauds, uh, people being bribed over the last 30 years by major energy companies to get people out of the way who may have inventions that may threaten their huge trillion-dollar market. What is then uh, the reason why the American military machine want to get involved? The three major powers on the planet, the US and then China and then Russia, all got interested in him, and there's one major reason. 
the CIA wrote a thing called Oilgram News. I changed the name and the anagram in the book, but the essential meat in that deal they had or that commentary on El Hote is real. You've read that in the book. And they wanted to get him on side because they have a, a system of taking on everything from wackos to real serious scientists like Pons and Fleischmann to develop whatever and leading into the military side. So NASA um, and all the other aerospace companies were interested in him at, and they still are, massively, massively. But they're interested so, in the oil, but also in the inventions and this that's right. notion of cold fusion. But you yes. mentioned Fleischmann and Pons, yes. who claim to have produced cold fusion in a laboratory. But yes. how probable is that discovery of Fleischmann and Pons? Well, I think it's 100% uh, because he's actually harnessed this in a very manageable form, which can be attached to all combustion engine, which leads into another question you asked me. Why would the US be so interested in him apart from the oil? Well, when you can fire up a spaceship or a car or a battleship or anything with a combustion engine, if you can use the fuel he does, in other words, extract the energy from water using cold fusion, then there's huge interest in him for various reasons. What we have then is a, an intriguing story which works on a variety of levels. So you've got these political and corporate uh, structures going on in the background which are influencing things and then it works on the personal level because Al's life and Victor's life for that matter are both endangered as these corporations, these conglomerates try and take action to control things and in many ways it's an insight into how the wider world works but just to add to things you've got drug running, you've got assassinations, we travel all over the world and there really isn't enough time to cover all of those bases. And I'm afraid, uh, <laughs> Roland, we're going to actually have to end the interview there. We've gone well over time. but I'm the, very sad. I'm <laughs> very sad. But the book is called The Shaman. The author is Roland Perry. And it's an Alan and Unwin release. So thank you for talking with me today, Roland. Well, thank you, David, for actually going the trouble of all the work you've done, because I know you've read it and thoroughly. I don't always get that. And look, I don't think it's complex as a read. I, I pride myself on being able to deliver a narrative, but it is layered and you've pulled out the layers beautifully. I thank you for that. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.